0: Well, it's good to see part of our choir singing again today. You know, as preachers, we always have the choir behind us, and that's very <laughs> encouraging. And we've not been able to see our choir and orchestra and our praise band for, well, we've seen some of them on stage in the, the band, but we've not seen our choir in months now. And just to see some of their faces on the screen today is so encouraging and uh, gives us such hope that... Hopefully, before too awfully long, we'll be able to uh, have them back in that choir loft and things will be back to normal. I hope that you're doing well. Let me add my welcome to you today, wherever you may be worshiping from and joining us from today in your home, or maybe you're traveling this weekend. I want to thank you for being a part of this service, and I hope that you and your family are having a great Fourth of July weekend. And I know the service so far has been a blessing to my heart and I hope that what I'm going to share now for the next few minutes will, will be a blessing to your heart. So let me just kind of back into the sermon today, because about a week or so ago, my dad said to me, he said, John, what are you going to preach about next Sunday? And I said, well, I would, I'm thinking about getting back in the study of Revelation. And he said, well, that'd be a good thing. But he said, I'll be honest with you. I really think it would be better next week if we had a sermon on America, on our country. It's the 4th of July weekend, we're going to have uh, some patriotic music, and he said it's on everybody's mind, and he said, I think it would be a good thing if you would work this week and put something together so that you can focus our hearts and focus our prayers on what's happening in our country today, what God would have to happen in our country, and what we can do as the people of God So that his will would be done here in this land that we love so much And so I'm going to try to do that as best I can This is a different type of a sermon for me But hopefully it will be a blessing Certainly it's appropriate And I pray that you'll be blessed and that God will be pleased So let me just kind of back into our thinking on America today By sharing with you something that happened to me back in 1988 That's been a long time ago now, 32 years but in June of 1988, I graduated from high school, and not many days after graduation, our family traveled to San Antonio to attend the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, for a pastor's family, that's not an unusual thing to do, and so that was kind of our trip for the summer. It was our kind of last hurrah as a family before I went off to school in the fall, and there we were in San Antonio, going to the convention, hearing lots of sermons, seeing lots of friends, and just enjoying the time that we had there together. The convention sermon that year, which is always the apex and kind of the high-water mark of the convention, was preached by a pastor named Joel Gregory, who at that time pastored the Travis Avenue Baptist Church in Fort Worth. He's one of the greatest preachers that I've ever heard, and the sermon he preached on that particular Uh, Day at the convention was one of the greatest, in my opinion. Now, who am I, but I will say, in my opinion, it was one of the greatest sermons uh, in American history, certainly in the history of Southern Baptist preaching. He preached a sermon that day called The Castle and the Wall. And if you want to hear a good sermon, I would encourage you later on today, just Google uh, The Castle and the Wall Sermon by Joel Gregory and sit back for about 36 minutes and just enjoy one of the greatest sermons that I've ever heard in my life. Now, in that sermon, Dr. Gregory explained and told how a beautiful castle in Ireland came to a sudden and very strange end. The name of the castle was Castle Ray, And for many years, it had been uninhabited. Nobody lived there. And so the castle itself had become uh, somewhat uh, disheveled and uh, kind of beginning the process of falling apart. Well, as often happens when a building begins to decay like that, there were some vandals in that part of Ireland who began to, to take stones from that castle. And to begin to vandalize and steal things that were in that castle. Well, on a particular day, a man named uh, Lord Londonderry, who was the sole surviving heir of that castle, came to visit his castle and to see what it looked like. He had not been to that castle in years and years. And when he got there, he noticed that the castle was completely uninhabited. He noticed that stones had been removed from the castle other things of value had been taken from the castle and so since this was his castle he was very discouraged about that and burdened about that and so he hired a man in the area to build a wall around the castle and he said to this man he said what I want you to do is to build a six foot wall around this castle and he said, I want you to build the wall out of the finest stones that you can find. He said, it's going to take some time, and you're going to have to have some help, but if you'll build a six-foot-high wall around this castle, it will preserve the castle. It will keep out the, 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 the vandals and the criminals, and the castle can, can survive and ultimately even be rebuilt. Well, The man began the process of building that wall, and Lord Londonderry went back to where he was living, and about three or four years later, Lord Londonderry came back to that castle. He came back to see what had happened to that wall, and when he got back to this part of Ireland, he noticed that a strange thing had happened. He noticed that there was a beautiful wall, but there was no castle. The castle was completely gone. And as Joel Gregory described this story, he said the castle had literally vanished into thin air. And so Lord Londonderry went to the man who he had hired to build the wall. And he said, I don't understand what's happened here. He said, I hired you to build a wall around the castle and to get the finest stones that you could find. My question to you is, where is the castle? the man replied to Lord Londonderry and said, sir, you asked me to get the finest stones I could find in Ireland to build this wall with. And it just so happens that the finest stones is what made the castle. And so what I did was I took the stones from the castle and I built this beautiful wall. And so what the man had done was he had torn down the castle and he had built the wall. Now, After telling that story in 1988 at the Southern Baptist Convention in San Antonio, Dr. Gregory said, that he said, I want to use that story as somewhat of a parable to describe what I fear is happening in the Southern Baptist Convention, and back in the late 1970s and through the 1980s, There was a conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention that needed to happen because our convention at that time uh, had been infiltrated by some theological liberalism that was threatening the very existence of our denomination. And many other denominations across America and around the world through the years have been Uh, not only infiltrated by liberalism, but have been destroyed by liberalism. By theological liberalism, I mean a theology that half believes the Bible. They pick and choose. This part's the Word of God. This part's not the Word of God. Adam and Eve weren't real people. There really wasn't a flood. There was really no such person as Noah. Uh, All these type things. Jesus may or may not really come back all these things are just told to make a point it's theological liberalism The, the theological liberal says the Bible contains the word of God and what they mean by that is part of the Bible is the word of God part of the Bible is not the word of God the theological conservative holds up the Bible and says the Bible doesn't contain the word of God the Bible is the word of God and so in our own denomination in the 70's and 80's there was a conservative resurgence and much good came from that what were we doing, what was the denomination doing? The denomination was building a, a wall around the castle. Now, the castle, in that analogy, was the Southern Baptist Convention. But what Joel Gregory said in that sermon was so good and so true, he said, while we have done the right thing in stopping theological liberalism from destroying our convention, my fear is that As we build this wall, we have become so obsessed with the wall. We have become so angry with those who disagree with us on theological matters. And there's such bitterness, there's such resentment... There is such ill will on the part of some in the denomination whose intention is good to build the wall. He said, and he said on that particular day in that sermon, he said, My fear is that if we're not careful, we're going to build the wall and lose the castle. We're going to build a wall to protect our denomination, but we're doing it with such anger, such venom, such bitterness, such resentment that my fear is we won't have a denomination left. It's interesting, when Joel Gregory finished preaching that sermon, Adrian Rogers, who was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention at that time, came to the platform, thanked Dr. Gregory for the sermon, and Adrian Rogers said this to all the delegates who had, delegates who had gathered that day. He said, friend, in my heart, I believe we have just heard a prophetic Word from God. God is saying to us that while we need a wall to protect us from liberalism, if we don't build this wall with love, if we don't build this wall with patience, if we don't build this wall wrapping our arms around each other instead of shutting each other out, he echoed what the sermon was, and he was basically saying, if we don't have love in our hearts, we may build us a pretty wall, but we won't have a convention left. Now, that was 1988, and the analogy was towards the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, today, I'm not preaching on that subject, but I do want to use the analogy of the castle and the wall to talk about our country. And while the analogy or the parable is not exactly the same as the one used that day to talk about the Southern Baptist Convention, I think if we'll keep that analogy in our mind, we can see at least a little bit more clearly what is happening in America. Now, I want to oversimplify from my perspective. And so that's what it's worth. It's from my perspective. I want to oversimplify what is happening in the United States today. And on this 4th of July weekend, it seems like the appropriate time to uh, say it. There seem to be some who look at the castle. Now, our castle is America. That's the castle. Most of us were born in this country. Others have moved to this country, but all of us love the United States of America, some love the country so much that they almost look at the castle through rose-colored glasses, and their idea is the castle is perfect, and what we need to do is build a wall around the castle and don't change a thing. Well, I think most all of us have a certain amount of pride in America, and, and we share some of that sentiment that we love America so much we want to protect it but listen to me, friend, the thought that says, because I love America, because I'm from America, because I'm proud of to be an American, uh, because I've lived here most all of my life, if not for most of us, for all of our life. But to take that one step further and to say America is perfect and we need to build a wall around it to keep it exactly like it is, is just not wrong. Listen, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Nobody is perfect, and America is not perfect. As much as I love America, I would be dishonest if I... and I don't think anybody would say... I mean, nobody's going to verbalize that. I just think sometimes we feel that way. We love our country so much, we just think it's perfect. America is not perfect. America, through the years, has passed laws and done things that have pulled us away from God, that have broken the heart of God, and so America... While it is our castle and while we do love it and while we do need to have some walls to protect our country, America is not a perfect place. Now, I think there are other people who look at America from a completely different perspective and they know that America is not perfect and they're not so much focusing on building a wall to protect perfect America. What they're looking at, they're looking at the American castle and what they're saying is... We need to just tear the castle down and start all over again. And there is that movement today. And I know I'm oversimplifying it, but you see these two extremes. On the extremes, you see this. Some saying America's perfect, don't change a thing. Build a wall. Others are saying the castle needs to come down and we need to build a new American castle. And what I'm saying today is that both of those extremes are wrong. It is true that America is imperfect it is true that the castle needs to be refurbished. It is new that it is true that some changes need to be made. But we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't need to just tear down the American castle and start from scratch because there are so many wonderful things about America and about the American castle. And so what I want to do in our time together today is I want us to think about how we can build a better castle, and how we can build a stronger wall. Now, when I say a wall, I want to be clear on this. I'm not talking about the wall on the border of America and Mexico. I'm not talking about a literal wall. That's the farthest thing from my mind. Keep the analogy clear. The castle is America. What is the wall? The wall is the political process, the government, and the laws that protect the castle. When I talk about the wall, I'm talking about the Democratic Party. I'm talking about the Republican Party. I'm talking about the House of Representatives. I'm talking about the Senate. I'm talking about the Supreme Court. I'm talking about the executive branch. I'm talking about the government. I'm talking about the laws that protect the castle, and what I'm saying is if we will do some very specific things, we can have a better castle That would better honor God, and we can have a better wall to protect the castle so that our country can be what God would have it to be, and so that God, God's will could come uh, in our midst. So if you have your Bible this morning, I wish you would open it to Psalm 127. Now, Psalm 127 is one of my favorite psalms in the Bible, and we're going to just look at a small portion, just a few lines from this psalm. But what I want to show you today are two different types of stones that we could use to build our castle stronger and better, to refurbish our castle, and then to better build our wall. Two types of stones, just like that uh, wall at the Castle Ray there in Ireland was built of stone. We need to have some stones that we could help build our castle and build our wall. And the first stone is what I'm going to call the stone of reverence for God. Reverence for God. I fear that to a large extent... We have lost our reverence for God. We have lost our fear of God. Things that we used to would have been ashamed of, we're no longer ashamed of. Things that used to would have embarrassed us, no longer embarrass us. and we've lost our fear. And our the, of the recognition of the holiness of God. Before we look at the verse in Psalm 127, let me give you a verse out of Proverbs. Chapter 9 and verse 10. That verse says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does America need? America needs wisdom. What do all of our political leaders need? They need wisdom. But if they don't have the fear of God, they're not going to have wisdom. And they're not going to make good laws. And they can't protect the castle. So down will go the castle... Out will be the wall, and so we have to have a reverence and a fear of God. Now, in Psalm 127, look in the first verse, because this is the verse we're going to look at this morning, and Solomon is writing this. Now, he's the wisest man who ever lived, other than Jesus, so Solomon knew about wisdom, and he knew about leading a nation. He was the the king of Israel. But notice what he said, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. What was Solomon saying? Solomon was saying, you can pass all the laws you want to pass. You can build all the wall you want to build to protect that castle of your country. But unless the Lord is building that wall, unless the Lord is guarding that castle, you're doing it all in vain. And so that says to me that We need to return as Americans and as America to a fear and a reverence and a respect and an awe of God and the Bible and all that God teaches us in His Word. Now, as I was thinking about uh, reverencing God and honoring God, I, I got to thinking about the Pledge of Allegiance. And I did a little reading and studying on the Pledge of Allegiance and I learned some things about it that I did not know. You may already know this or maybe this will be new to you too, but the Pledge of Allegiance, the Pledge of Allegiance was first written in 1892. And these were the words of the original pledge. This was the first version version of the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to my flag and to the republic for which it stands. One nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. There's the Pledge of Allegiance in 1892. Now, in 1923, the pledge was amended and the phrase, uh, my flag, was replaced by the flag of the United States of America. So in 1923, it said, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands. One nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That was our pledge in 1923. Well, in 1954, in response to threats at that time from communist countries and from the emerging communist world of that day, President Eisenhower asked Congress to add the two words under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. And so, the Congress voted, and they voted to add the two words, the prepositional phrase, under God. And that led us to the 31-word Pledge of Allegiance that we now have today. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation, under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. So the part about under God didn't get added to the Pledge of Allegiance until 1954 under President Eisenhower and the Congress that he worked with. I think that up until that point, it was understood that we were under God based on some things that I'll share later from the Declaration of Independence, but nonetheless, it wasn't there, and so it was added. And that says to me that as recently as 70 or so years ago, the President of the United States, the Congress of the United States said, We need to make clear, as the leaders of this country, as the, one who ha- the ones who have been entrusted with building a wall, around the American castle to protect us, that in order for our country to be all that it can be, all that it should be, all that it was intended to be, we must make clear that we are one nation under God. And they put it in the pledge. And friend, let me say to you today, the moment we cease being one nation under God, in that moment, we are a nation that is going under. And yet, in our day, there has been so much of the reverence of God, the fear of God that has been lost. And I'm saying as we refurbish an imperfect castle, and as we rebuild an imperfect wall, we need to use the stone of reverence for God. That's how you know who to vote for. That's how you know what laws are good and which laws are bad. You ask this question, which candidate, which laws best represent God and the teachings of His Word, because those would be the candidates that would lead us to better reverence God. So that's stone number one, reverence for God. Now, stone number two is is equally as important, but it is It's an extension of stone number one, but it's different. It's totally different from stone number one. Stone number two, not only do we need reverence for God, but we need to refurbish America. We need to rebuild the wall with what? With love for our fellow American citizens. Now we need love for everybody, no matter what country they're from. But since I'm preaching today about America, I just wanted to say it that way and make it even more specific because I think it has a little more punch to it. What do we need in our hearts? We need love for our fellow Americans. That's what Joel Gregory was saying at the Southern Baptist Convention in 1988. He said, in all of our earnestness, With all of our conviction to build a strong wall around our denomination, if we don't have love for one another, we're going to have a wall, but we're not going to have a denomination anymore. Because what did Jesus say? Jesus said, by their love you will know them. It is not our orthodoxy. Our orthodoxy is important. Our Our theology is important. Our convictions are important. And that's why I started out with reverence for God. We can't compromise our convictions. But if we don't add to those convictions a love in our heart and a tenderness in our heart, even for people and with people who are different from us, who have different views from us, who look at the American situation differently. We all look at it through our own lens, through our own perspective. But just because I see America from my perspective, that doesn't necessarily mean that's how other people are looking at America. And so just because someone else looks at America differently than I do, and, and their convictions are different than I am, that I don't compromise my convictions to accommodate them, but that doesn't give me an excuse to belittle them or to demonize them or to hate them, or to throw stones at them, or to say, you're what's wrong with America. No, it is my responsibility as an American, but even more than as an American, as a Christian, as a child of God, to communicate to those who are different from me, who look at things different than I do. We may disagree. You have one perspective. I have my perspective. But I have to be able to put my arm around that brother. I have to be able to put my arm around that sister and say, we may look at it differently. But in my heart, there's love for you. There's there's no hate. There's no animosity. There's no bitterness. There's no resentment. There's no trying to demon. No, there's love, and that's what's missing in America. That's what Joel Gregory said he was afraid was missing from the Southern Baptist Convention at that time, or at least potentially he was afraid it could be missing. And that's what Adrian Rogers said was a prophetic word from God. And what I'm saying today is, I'm afraid the same things happen to our country. We have our convictions. And especially those of us who are Christians, we're strong about our convictions. But we can't let our convictions cause us to hate people. Because what in the world is that? And if we do that in trying to be true to the Bible, we've actually disobeyed the Bible. Because God tells us in his word that it is our responsibility to love, love people who look at things like we do, love people who have the same perspective of America that we do, love people who grew up like we did, love people who look like we look, but also to love people who are different from us. Who were born, who were raised different, who who look different, who think differently than we do. We love them because they are our brothers and sisters in this nation of America. Now, the Declaration of Independence, of course, was signed on July the fourth, in 1776, 244 years ago. Yesterday, our nation celebrated a birthday. And the most well-known line in the Declaration of Independence says this. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Now listen to this. That all men are created equal. Our founding fathers, imperfect though they were, imperfect though we are, had the wisdom and the insight to say we are all created equal that they are endowed, now listen to this, by their creator. There we have a reference to God in the Declaration of Independence. By their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these, now here are these unalienable rights, that everyone should have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life. The right to life. That's why we talk about we are pro life. We are pro people being born. We're pro people living. We're doing everything even now in this pandemic to keep people healthy. Why? Because we're pro life. We're pro birth, but we're also pro life. We're not just pro birth, we are pro birth, but we're pro life all the way through life. We do everything we can to help people to live a long and a full life. But it's life and it's liberty. Freedom, religious liberty. I, I said in a recent devotional on one of these noonday devotionals that religious liberty may be the most important liberty we have as American citizens. Because with religious liberty, we have the right, even though it's it's weird and we're all in different rooms, but we have the right to come to church today and sing about Jesus. I have the right to come to church today and open the Bible and teach about Jesus. You have the right, right there where you are in your home, or if we could come up here, to come up here and to worship God as you see fit. And that is a right that we should cherish and do everything we can can to defend life, liberty, and then the pursuit of happiness. And so the Declaration of Independence says, hey, we're all created equal. Our Creator has given us these uh, unalienable rights that that belong to everybody. And so what I'm saying is, as we think about America, yes, we have our convictions, and yes, we want to reverence and honor God, and we should never compromise that, but neither should we allow our convictions to hate people who are different from us. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus was on this earth, did he have convictions? Yes, he did. He, had, he was full of convictions. Second question, when Jesus was on this earth, did he rub shoulders with people who had different convictions than he did? Sure he did. Most everybody he was up against had different convictions than he did. Let me ask this question. Did Jesus love those people? Yes, he did. Even the people, the religious leaders of that day who turned against him, the Jewish people of that day who turned against him, the Romans who crucified him, even the people who nailed him to that cross, you talk about a difference of opinion. What was Jesus saying? Was he saying, God, zap them dead for what they've done? Obviously, they're sinning against us. Is that what Jesus? No, what did Jesus do? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus never compromised his convictions, but he never sacrificed his love. He always loved. He never stopped loving. It was unconditional love. And what I'm saying today is is one of the things that is missing in America is we have these two extremes One is saying don't change anything. One is saying we have to change everything. And what's happening is the two extremes have turned on each other so that now our country is actually fighting against each other. We're at war with each other. We're at odds with each other. America to a large extent, whether it's in Congress, whether it's uh, just in, in, the, in the world, and not even in the political world, but just as people talk about politics, we are against each other. We, we look to see who is our enemy instead of seeing who can we put our arms around, who can we shake hands with and be their friend. And so we need love. That's what's missing today is love. And I'm encouraging you, keep your convictions. I'm keeping mine. I'm not backing down from what the Bible says on anything. But I pray I would never let my convictions make me think it's okay to hate somebody who doesn't see it that way or to demonize somebody who looks at America differently than I do. You know, in these last few weeks, even during this pandemic, uh, we've seen some things in America that have been very disturbing. First of all, we have seen the sin of racism raise its ugly head. You know, I, I know I'm naive, and I'll be the first to admit that I'm naive. But I honestly thought that we had gone farther away from that than, than we have. And, and I'm sure it's because I was raised. When I, and the way I was raised. I was raised just that the color of somebody's skin doesn't mean anything. When I grew up in East Tennessee, I, I went to an elementary school there called Nichols Elementary School. And I was there from the first grade through, I believe, the fourth grade. And during those years, my best friend was a guy named Buster Jones. And Buster and I ate lunch together. We played ball together. I would go to his house after school sometime. He would come to my house after school sometime. We went to each other's birthday parties. Buster was a black kid, and I was a white kid. And yet, you know, to us, it never mattered. We never even thought about it. We moved from Tennessee to East Texas and got involved in sports and school there. And I've looked back on those years of my life. Many of my friends were black Many of my friends were, were Hispanic. Some of my friends were Asian. There were people from different backgrounds. Many of my friends were white. But in, in, the, in the world I grew up in, even in those years, it didn't make any... I played ball. And, and some of us were white. Some were black. Some were Hispanic. Some were from different ethnic backgrounds. But it didn't, it didn't make any difference because that the color of our skin doesn't matter. What does the Declaration of Independence say that all men are created equal? You know, this whole thing about racism, it's a sin. And I'll say this, it's a sin that I don't understand. You know, all sin is wrong. Any sin is wrong. But there's some sins that, that that people commit. And I can understand it. For example, you've got a kid here in school and and the kid breaks a rule. He does something wrong in class. And so he gets called to the principal's office and the principal says, did you do this? And the kid did it. But the kid knows if he says, yes, I did it. I'm going to be in trouble. And so the kid, the kid lies and says, no, no, I didn't do that. Well, the kid shouldn't lie. That's the second sin. That, that's even worse. We were always taught growing up, no matter what you do, tell us the truth, because if you lie, it's going to be worse than whatever it was you did. So I, for the kids who are listening today, don't ever lie to your parents. If you do something wrong, come clean, tell them, and it'll be a whole lot better on you than if you try to cover it. The cover-up is most always worse than the sin. So lying is a sin, and I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm certainly not condoning lying. All I'm saying is I can understand why sometimes people lie. They don't want to get in trouble. They want to look good. Uh, We shouldn't lie. The Bible says if lying is a part of your life, you're not even saved because liars will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if somebody habitually lies, it just uh, indicates they've never truly been saved. What I'm saying is lying is a sin, but I can understand why people do it even though it's wrong. The sin of racism, I can't understand it. I cannot for the life of me understand how somebody could hate somebody just because they have a different color skin, or just because they're from a different ethnic background, or just because they're from a different country. It is heartbreaking and it is sad. And I say I'm naive because I look at America from my perspective and I just thought we had we had moved beyond that. And yet in in recent weeks we have seen that horrible sin. Listen, the Bible says that for those of us who are saved, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. And one of the ways we know that we're truly saved is that we love people no matter their background, no matter their skin color, no matter their political preference, no matter, their, no matter anything. That we love people because God loves people. God loves everybody. And we should too. And yet we've seen the sin of racism raise its ugly head and I pray to God that that that, that, that sin could be repented of and I pray that, that our country could be full of love. And we've also seen in recent days, uh, by 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 a small minority, but we've nonetheless seen the sin of vandalism and the sin of the sin of violence and, and people going in and destroying stores and and looting buildings and and, and stealing and taking things that don't belong to them and, and people who've worked their whole lives to build up small businesses. Their businesses have been burned down. And you see this on television. You say, how is this happening? How in the United States in 2020 could, these, could this be happening? And I don't understand how it could be happening, but I know this. If we could be full of the love of God, If we could express the love of God. Yes, we have our convictions. Yes, we see injustice sometimes. And everything in us cries out. And we say, we want justice. But we can't want justice so badly. That we create injustice. And that we break laws. And that we hurt people trying to get justice, that it's counterproductive and it's not working. It's not working for our country today. And that's what I'm saying. In America today, it seems as though we're fighting each other and we're working against each other. Whereas if we could just step back, take a deep breath, look to God, put ourselves under God and say, going forward, we may not agree on every little political issue, but going forward, let's put ourselves under the authority of God. Let's be one nation under God. Let's reverence God and let's love and let's respect our fellow American and let's give them the same love that God gives us, even if they sin, even if they mess up. Let's love them. Let's be patient with them, even as God loves us. You know, several years ago, I was preaching a funeral for a man named Mohan. Mohan was born and raised in India, and he was not a Christian. Most all of his life he was not a Christian. Mohan got sick and ended up being put in the hospital, one of the hospitals here in Pasadena. And not many days before he died, Jimmy Herwick, our minister of music, went and visited Mohan in the hospital, had a wonderful visit with him, told him how to be saved, and led Mohan to the Lord. Mohan got saved. And not long after that, he died. And so his wife, Nemi, who I, whom I love dearly, and she's still a faithful member of our church, fighting her own physical battle right now, actually, but Nimi called and said, John, could you officiate Mohan's funeral service? Which, gladly, I said I would, and I did. And on the day of his service, we met in what was our worship center then. It's, it's our grace center now. And I would estimate that there were about 400 people in attendance that day, many of whom from the nation of India. They had been born there. They had been raised there. Some, have I'm sure, had traveled there to attend the service. Others had moved to America, but they were nonetheless Indian. And so at the service, many of those from that Indian background wore these long, beautiful robes. Here I am on the platform, a white man, an American, Caucasian, and I'm getting ready to speak at Mohan's service, a man whom I had come to know and love too, just like I love his wife, Nimi. And as I looked across that congregation, and as I saw 400 or so people from the Indian culture in their beautiful robes, this thought ran through my mind. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing when we come to church here at First Baptist on Sunday, if we had three or 400 or so people from the Indian culture, who could come to church and wear their beautiful robes. And that just sent my mind going even farther. And I thought, wouldn't it also be beautiful when we come to church on Sunday if we had about that many or even more people from the Hispanic world who would come and and who could worship with us. And I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful on Sundays when we gathered together here at First Baptist if we could see hundreds of African-Americans coming to worship God here? And I just started thinking about all these different people groups and all these different ethnic backgrounds. And I began to think about Asians. And I began to think about, and I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful when we come together on Sunday if we could have white people and black people and Hispanics and Asians and Indians. You know, today in our culture, you hear a lot about the black church or the white church or the Hispanic church or the Asian church or the Indian church. Friend, let me remind you today, there's only one church, and that is the church of God in Jesus Christ. And it would be a happy day for me, and I'm sure a happy day for you, and I know a happy day for God if he could look down in our midst and see under the same roof one people, one nation, one body under God worshiping him from our different backgrounds and from our different perspectives. You know, when we get to heaven, that's what it's going to be like. The Bible says in heaven we'll gather around the throne from every tribe, And every tongue, every nation, every kindred, every people, every skin color will be together there in God's presence, worshiping Jesus. We'll be one people under God, under the blood of Jesus, worshiping Him with all of our hearts. And I say to myself, if it's going to be like that in heaven, why can't it be like that down here on earth? Why can't we refurbish the American castle Why can't we, through our political processes, through our Democratic and Republican parties, through our elected leaders, why can't we build a a wall that would help us to have one nation under God, built with these two stones, reverence for God and love for our fellow American citizen? And I believe if we did that, God would be pleased, we would be blessed, and we would begin to experience in our own beloved America... What Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. With our heads bowed and eyes closed today, would you just make that your prayer right now? Would you say, God, help me to do my part. I'm only one person. I'm not an elected leader. I don't have that type of authority. But God, in my daily life, in my dealings with others, God, in the candidates I support, in the political process that we go through, God, help me. Give me, God. Give me the grace and the strength to do my part, to refurbish our country and to refurbish the political wall, God, with a reverence for you and with a love for my fellow citizen. With heads bowed and eyes closed today, it may be that as I've been preaching this sermon on America, that God has spoken to your heart and that God has revealed to you that the reason you don't have love in your heart is because you don't have God in your heart. Because God is love. And one of the telltale signs of a true Christian is love. Love for everybody. And so if you don't have love in your heart today, if you don't know that you have God living in your heart today, would you pray this prayer? Say, Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me and I trust you to do it. I trust you right now, Jesus, with all my heart. Now fill my heart, fill my life with love. God, help me to live my life. Help me to build my life, not just America, but my family, my business, everything about my life with these two stones, reverence for you and love for everybody else. Help me to live that way. In Jesus' name I pray. And all the people said, amen and amen.